Who is qualified? Who has what it takes to serve as an elder, to serve as an overseer, to serve as a pastor? Said differently and more biblically, who has received from God what it takes to serve in this capacity? Second Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul considers this question in a roundabout way, referring to his own ministry, his own apostleship. He raises the question of his own adequacy, his own sufficiency, his own qualification, if you will, for the job to which he was called. And I think the question is a good one for us to think about with regard to the offices in the church. Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul reflects on his ministry uh, in a very interesting way using an interesting metaphor. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? When he thinks about the nature of his ministry in this metaphorical way. He comes down to it and recognizes that no one is really sufficient in and of himself for these things. Now he uses this metaphor of an aroma, a smell. And he's talking about his carrying of the gospel, his communication of the gospel to other people. He's talking about what happens when he talks about Jesus To other people. He says, first and foremost, we are the aroma of Christ. The smell of the Messiah is upon us. But first, he says that that smell goes up to God. What's interesting about that is he's actually using Old Testament sacrificial imagery to describe his ministry, his proclamation of the gospel. It is a pleasing aroma to God the way the sacrifices were in the Old Testament. They would go up in smoke, and it would be described as a pleasing aroma to God. And Paul says that's what his ministry is like. That's what it's like when he talks about Jesus with other people. It's a pleasing aroma to God. But how does it impact the people we're talking to? That's where he goes next. He says that this whiff, this aroma, this smell goes out to two different groups, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. In saying it this way, he divides humanity into two groups, only two groups. You, as an individual this morning, are either in one group or the other. You cannot be in both groups at the same time, and there is no third category. You are either one who is being saved, or you are one who is perishing. And what Paul's describing here is that when when someone talks about Jesus to you, the smell that you get will be one way or another. When Paul talks about Jesus, communicates the gospel to other believers in Jesus, the smell is the smell of life. And it is life-giving. 
It is the whiff of living and life in its fullness and actually receiving that over and over and over again actually moves us more in the direction of life. It moves us from the life we already have to a greater and fuller experience of that same eternal life. But for the other category, for those who are perishing, when Jesus is presented to them, when the gospel is spoken and they hear it, it smells quite different. It is an aroma, a fragrance of death. It smells like the tomb and it repels them. Something that we need to think about that's important to recognize when people who don't know Jesus hear the gospel, if they continue to reject the gospel, if they continue in their hardness toward the gospel, what they are experiencing is a greater and greater experience of death. They are moving further and further away from God. They are heaping on themselves greater and greater condemnation. That happens when we preach the gospel to people and people reject it. It is the fragrance of death to them and it repels them and moves them further in their condemnation. Given that reality, that talking about Jesus with other people has this kind of impact on people's lives, Paul recognizes the weight and the responsibility of doing that. Talking about Jesus is not some flippant thing that we do. Talking about Jesus has consequences in people's lives. And Paul recognizes that and he asks the question, who is sufficient for this? Who is adequate? Who is qualified? Well, he talks more about that in the very next chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, just a few verses later. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 6. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. So Paul recognizes his own inadequacy in and of himself, but it is God who makes someone adequate, who makes someone sufficient for the task. It is God who qualifies us. Said the way that we did last week, drawing from Acts chapter 20, it is the Holy Spirit who makes men elders. It is the Holy Spirit who makes men overseers or pastors. And so it is that it is the Holy Spirit who equips men with the, what it takes to serve in this role. We want to talk about that a little bit this morning. I mentioned last week that we are thinking that our body might need a few more men to serve. We haven't quantified that, but we're thinking that one or two more men might come to join us in serving as elders or overseers and also some men might join us in serving as deacons. And we'll talk more about deacons next Sunday. But we want to open this up a little bit from the Scriptures to to talk about what it is to be in this role and how someone is qualified for it. Because the New Testament lays it out quite clearly. And so we want to talk about what the Scriptures say here. And so this morning we want to think about the qualifications and selection of officers 
Now we know that you're probably familiar with 1 Timothy 3 and Acts chapter 1 as kind of a list of qualifications that a man must meet in order to serve in one of these roles. And we'll look at those texts, but very briefly, I'm simply going to read those texts to you later in this message and present that before you. But I want to talk more about what the scriptures say about how they are to be chosen, how those men are to be recognized. If it is the Holy Spirit that makes men overseers, how is it that we recognize the Holy Spirit in the work of a man's, in the work of a man's, in the, in the life of a man? How do we recognize that and what do we do to officially put them in and serving in this role? That's what we want to talk about and look at this morning because I believe the Bible gives us a pattern to follow. A pattern rooted in the Old Testament, reiterated in the New Testament, and kind of assumed almost behind the scenes when this list of qualifications is given in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. What we're seeing is what we need to look for with our own eyeballs in a man's life. And if we see these qualities in a particular man, then they may be qualified. We may be seeing the evidence that the Holy Spirit has equipped a particular man to serve in this role. And so I want to look at that. But we're going to start this morning in Acts chapter 6. It might seem like a strange place to start. You may be familiar with this text. And it's usually trotted out to think about deacons in particular. But what I'd like to show you this morning is that the New Testament, or the, the Acts chapter 6 and even further on, never refers to the men in this passage as deacons. I'll show you why we usually connect it with deacons, but uh, the text itself doesn't call these men deacons. Instead, what I think we're seeing in Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 6 is uh, a, a committee essentially being formed to deal with a particular issue. But what I want to highlight and emphasize is that there's a pattern here. A pattern for the way people are chosen for these official positions. And then I want to go back to the Old Testament and show you that that pattern follows what was laid out in the experience of Israel very early on. And so that's where we're headed this morning to think about the way that God's people are to be involved in choosing their leadership. Okay, so let's look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. We're looking at the story about the twelve and the seven. The twelve and the seven. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Let's read those verses. Now in those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve Tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These, 
they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. It's a pretty straightforward story, but let's remember some of the context here in Acts chapter 6. This is the church of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, you'll remember, was the day of Pentecost, about 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And so the, the, the uh, followers of Jesus are gathered together in Jerusalem on that first day of Pentecost after the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them so that they spoke in tongues... They spoke different languages that they hadn't learned, and the people all gathered around in Jerusalem heard them speaking about the wonders of God, talking about the works of God, declaring the gospel essentially in their own languages, languages that the disciples had not learned previously. And so then Peter stands up to preach, and you'll remember he preached this long sermon that then addressed the Jewish people in Jerusalem and all of these travelers who were visiting in Jerusalem for the holiday, and 3,000 of them responded to Peter's preaching by trusting in Jesus and repenting of their sins and being baptized on that day. It's a momentous occasion for the church. Since then, that was Acts chapter 2, since then, thousands more Jewish people have come to follow Jesus. Thousands more. And so what you have is the church of Jerusalem exploding in a very short amount of time. It's not real clear how much time exactly has passed from Acts 2 to Acts 6, but we should be probably thinking in the realm of months. This is a huge explosion. Now, most of those perhaps that came to Jesus on the day of Pentecost, have gone home. They don't live in Jerusalem. They were visitors, remember? So they went home, back to their different areas all over the world. But since then, the apostles have been preaching the gospel in Jerusalem, and people have been responding by trusting Jesus, repenting from their sins, and being baptized. And so the church of Jerusalem is exploding in numbers. Thousands of Jewish people are following Jesus by this point. And so as the church in Jerusalem is growing, they've got a problem. The apostles are the only leadership that we see that's kind of acknowledged at this point. So you've got 12 men trying to organize and take care of perhaps thousands of people. Perhaps you can imagine the administrative nightmare that was going on. Not only at this point were the apostles preaching the gospel regularly there in Jerusalem, primarily at the temple, but also out in the community, but apparently they were overseeing what's called in verse 1 of Acts 6, a daily distribution. The apostles were making sure that particularly the widows were being cared for. Now this is reflected back in Acts chapter 4 and into chapter 5 where you see that the believers in Jesus were coming and they were selling their stuff and they were bringing the money to the apostles and saying, here, take this and use it to provide for the needs of the people in the church of Jerusalem. Because think about it. If these are Jewish people, particularly in the focus here is on the Jewish widows, Normally, they would have been cared for and provided for by the Jewish community in Jerusalem. But now that they've begun to follow Jesus, the Jewish people have said, we're not going to take care of you anymore. And so it becomes the church of Jerusalem's responsibility to care for these widows. And so it seems that every day 
It says daily distribution. These widows were coming to receive food and perhaps some financial assistance along the way, but primarily food. Day after day, it was the apostles' job and the church's job ultimately to provide for these widows. But what we see is that there were two groups that had developed The ESV says they're Hellenists and Hebrews. This is probably focusing on linguistics, languages. The Hellenists are primarily Greek-speaking. They're comfortable in uh, uh, speaking Greek more so than Hebrew or Aramaic. And so that language division somehow caused a problem to where the ones who spoke Greek were being neglected by the apostles who primarily spoke Hebrew, although they spoke Greek as well. So I'm not real clear on why exactly this division happened, but nevertheless, the Greek-speaking widows ended up marginalized and neglected over time. And so they start complaining about it, reasonably enough. And so they bring this complaint forward to the apostles, and what we see here is the solution. The way that the apostles deal with this is based on a pattern that we see in the Old Testament. Before, but before we look at how these things unfold, let me just tie in a little bit of how we usually connect this passage with deacons and the idea of deacons. The term translated daily distribution at the end of verse 1, the word distribution, the Greek word is, listen carefully, diakonia. Diakonia. Perhaps you can hear the English word deacon there, right? Diakonia. The verb at the end of verse 2, where the apostles say that it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, is the verb diakoneo. So these are the words that are used in relationship to deacons. It is a word that means to serve, to serve, plain and simple. But the term itself, diakonas, is not used to refer to these men. They are never called deacons in this passage or elsewhere where at least Stephen and Philip are the only two among these seven who are mentioned again in the book of Acts and they're, they're not referred to as deacons. So what's going on here is there's an issue that needs to be dealt with that is related to a kind of service or ministry. We'll see more about that in just a second. But the, the idea is that this, there's a ministry going on that serves the needs of these particular widows. And it's not being done well because of the sheer size of the church. Perhaps you can appreciate the complexity that was beginning to develop. And so verse 2 presents the solution. The apostles say there in verse 2 that it's not right for them to give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And that tells us that we're talking about ministering food primarily, that the widows are needing uh, to be supplied with food. These widows would be ones who don't have a family, it seems. Any family left over, children or other relatives to take care of them. And so they're at the mercy of others. And the church steps in rightly to provide for their needs. But then in verse 4, the apostles continue and reiterate what they believe should happen. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That word ministry is the Greek word diakonia. And so what you have is you have two ministries. The ministry of preaching the word of God and you have the ministry of providing the food needs of these widows. 
Neither is necessary eleva- necessarily elevated above the other. They are both important and necessary and need to be dealt with. But what the apostles are recognizing is that God has equipped them and called them to do one of those ministries and not the other. And so what they're basically saying is, we're presented with a situation here that says that we need other people to step up to deal with this ministry, this important role of service in the body. We cannot do both. And so they understand their own calling and their own equipping as being for the purpose of the ministry, the diaconia of preaching the word. And others will need to step up to take care of the diaconia of feeding these widows on a day-to-day basis. And so that's where we have the idea of deacons. But again, I don't think that's out on the table at this point. We are simply talking about ministry that needs to be done and the labor needs to be divided. That's all. And so, but notice the way the solution is presented. Verse 2 again, the apostles, the twelve, summoned the full number of the disciples. They've called for a church meeting in Jerusalem. They've called the whole church together. Now, whether or not every single individual who was a member of the church of Jerusalem showed up, I don't know. When we call for church meetings, not everybody shows up either. Nevertheless... The summons is for the whole church to come together to decide a matter. And I think it's important that we recognize that. It is the full number of the disciples who are called and commanded to select who will serve in this ministry. It is the congregation who chooses their own leadership. The full number of the disciples is summoned together and they're told... Pick out from among yourselves seven men, and then three qualifications are listed. Now, I want you to think about this just practically for just a minute. You've got the twelve apostles who are not from Jerusalem. As far as we know, none of them were from Jerusalem. They didn't live there. They didn't grow up there. They've come in, and they've been here maybe for a number of months preaching the Word and having thousands of people respond to their preaching and begin to gather together day after day and week after week as the church of Jerusalem. And so these 12 apostles are not going to know personally and closely every individual in that body. Do you think? They don't know them well. And so they list three criteria But how are they going to judge who meets that criteria if they don't actually know the people? They can't. And so the sensible thing to do is to call on the people who know each other. The people who are among this body and who have lived together for some measure of time and would be able to look at that guy and say, that guy meets the qualifications. That guy meets the qualifications. That guy meets the qualifications. And that's how it's done. The criteria is listed The congregation evaluates the men, says, we think these men meet those qualifications. And then the apostles say, we will appoint them them to this duty. Now here, it's almost like a committee. We need a committee to deal with this issue. It's a temporary, isolated problem. It's not an office in the church. But I believe that it follows the pattern of the Old Testament. And it is assumed... 
in what we see in 1 Timothy and Titus, and I'll show you that in just a little bit. But note here again, the full number of the disciples choose, select, these seven men who meet these qualifications that are listed. And then the twelve appoint the seven. Pray for them, lay their hands on them, and set them loose to do their job, to deal with the issue. Now let me show you the Old Testament backdrop for this reality, where this is rooted in the Old Testament. We're going to look at two texts from the uh, law, from the story laid out in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch, whatever you want to call it, the first five books of of the Bible. And what I want to show you is that the two texts we're going to look at, we're going to start in Numbers chapter 11, And then we're going to drift over to Deuteronomy chapter 1 for just a moment. And what I want you to see is that these two texts are telling the same story. They're talking about the same event. Let me set the stage for you. Numbers chapter 11, we are just a few days after the people of Israel have left Mount Sinai. Okay, so they're on their way to Canaan, the promised land. They are just a few days journey out from Mount Sinai. And the people of Israel have complained. They've complained specifically that they want to eat some meat. They're sick of the manna and they want some meat. And so they whined about it and complained about it. And then Moses, in response, complained about them complaining. He complained to God. They complained to him. He complained to God. And he said in Numbers 11, I cannot bear the burden of these whiny people. I can't handle it by myself. And so what we're seeing is how God instructed him to deal with that that situation. God provided a solution, gave him some instructions, basically to choose more leadership. When we come to Deuteronomy, just to set the whole context here for you, Deuteronomy, if you remember, we're a generation later. They rebelled in the wilderness. They didn't go into the land like God called them to. They, They disbelieved God. They whined and complained, and God judged them. That whole generation, save for Joshua and Caleb and Moses, were killed. And their children have grown up, and now we're on the cusp of crossing the Jordan River to enter the Promised Land, and Moses is giving them a bunch of speeches, preaching a bunch of sermons before they go into the land. And his first sermon recounts this story. So in Deuteronomy 1, Moses is talking to the people, and he's saying, this is what happened back then. And so Deuteronomy 1 and Numbers 11 are telling the same story, but Moses doesn't tell it exactly the same way. He fills in some details. Now, when you go home today, if you're curious and you want to read the whole chapter of both of these and you try to compare them, they're kind of hard to fit together. If you've got questions about that, I'd be glad to talk about it with you sometime. But we're just going to keep it simple. We're going to isolate a couple of verses, and I'm going to suggest to you, assert to you without arguing for it very much, that this is talking about the same thing. Okay? So, let's look at Numbers eleven sixteen. So here's the solution. Moses has complained to God, and God says, okay, here's what you do about it. Numbers eleven sixteen. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, etc., etc., etc. And so God's instruction is, choose seventy men that you know to be the elders and the officers of the people. Now, what that tells us is that even as the people of Israel were living in slavery in Egypt for all those generations, 
they had developed some measure of organization. They had developed some level of at least recognizing some mature, older men among them who would lead them in some fashion. That would kind of take care of them and guide them in smaller groups. That was already a reality before they left Egypt. And so those guys are still around as they come up to Mount Sinai. And so you've got elders, you've got, over, uh, you've got officers over the people, and God says, pick 70 of those guys, and they will help you bear the burden of the people. Now, let's look at Deuteronomy 1 and the way that Moses retells this story. Deuteronomy 1.13. So again, Moses is addressing the people, and he says, this is what I told you to do on that occasion when I whined to God about how much of a burden you were. This is what you... This is what I told you back then. He said to the people, Deuteronomy 1.13, Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. So Moses said that what I did back then, on that occasion when you whined, was I told you to uh, all 12 tribes, select men from your own tribal groupings, who are wise, understanding, and experienced men, bring them to me and I will appoint them as your heads. So they're already elders and officers of the people. They've already shown themselves to be wise, understanding, and experienced men. And now Moses said, I'm going to elevate them to a new position of authority over you. Now, he doesn't say anything about how many here. He doesn't say that there were supposed to be 70. That's what we find out from Numbers 11. And this, again, would make sense. Think about Moses and his experience with the people of Israel. Even when they were in Egypt, Moses was a, basically an Egyptian official who didn't have much involvement with his people. And then when he finally does go to have some involvement with his people, he kills a man and runs out to the wilderness as a fugitive and lives out in Midian for 40 years. So the likelihood that Moses would have known the people of Israel very well is pretty slim. And then you go into the wilderness and you've got one man, Moses, leading hundreds of thousands of people marching across the wilderness. And, one more thing, as he comes to Mount Sinai, what does he do? He climbs up to the top all by himself and talks with God for at least 40 days. He's not really there present with the people. So it's unlikely that he would have known very well who would qualify for this role by himself. And so he calls on the tribes, the people, the congregation to choose the men who would be qualified for this role. And then Moses says... I will appoint them. I will elevate them to a new position of authority and then we will go about our business. Now, the other thing that happened in Numbers 11, probably should have mentioned before, but what happened next, so Moses chooses the men and then God told him, I will put some of the spirit that is on you on them to equip them to carry the load with you. And that's exactly what happened, if you remember. The men that were chosen were gathered, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them. They prophesied to show evidence that the Spirit was upon them. And then, apparently, they went about their business of doing whatever they needed to do to help Moses carry out his leadership roles. 
What's interesting about that fact is to to recognize there's been a flip-flop between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In that situation in the Old Testament, the men were chosen, and then the Spirit comes upon them to equip them for the task. But in the New Testament, it's exactly the opposite. The Holy Spirit is living in every single believer in Jesus. And as He works in particular men... He works out these specific character qualifications and skills needed to fill certain roles in the church. And then they are chosen based on that criteria, based on seeing the evidence of the Holy Spirit in their life in specific ways. So the order has been flip-flopped. Now, when we choose leaders, we're looking for the work of the Holy Spirit already there because it is the Holy Spirit who makes men overseers, elders, or pastors. And so that's how we should treat these qualifications as they're listed here. Back in Acts chapter 6, we're simply given three kind of vague (laughs) um, characteristics or qualities that are to be looked for. Full of uh, men of good repute. So this is Acts 6.3. Men of good repute. They have a good reputation among the people. They are full of the Spirit. Okay, what does that look like? Not sure exactly could look lots of ways, and full of wisdom. So they're to be men who exhibit the kind of wisdom needed to deal with this problem, right? It's, it's the relevant wisdom to deal with the issue at hand. They would have needed some administrative ability to kind of organize probably the large group of widows that they were having to deal with, and they would have needed to have some skill on kind of uh, rationing and dealing with a limited quantity of food and resources that would then be divvied out. So they would need to have certain skills. That's what wisdom refers to here in this case. But ultimately, it's the Spirit that produces these things. They are full of the Spirit, and the Spirit is the one who produces this wisdom in these people. And so that's what we're looking for when we think about this. And so the whole point of the matter in showing you this pattern that I think is there from the Old Testament to the New Testament is to recognize that the people of God choose their leadership. But it's, it's in concert. You have the people, you have the already established leaders, and you have the Holy Spirit. And all three have a role to play. The Holy Spirit makes men elders, meaning they equip the men who have the right qualities to serve in that role. They equip the men for the job. The congregation is then to see that and to recognize that and to say, I think that guy has got it. I think that guy fits the picture. And then the already established leadership, the elders who are already there, or in these special circumstances that we'll look at in the New Testament, you have apostles who are outside of the church looking in. They appoint the men to the position. Now, the way that works in our scenario, in our own day and in our own situation, looks a little bit different in some ways. We have all of those components in place, and that's the key thought. The congregation needs to communicate their voice. They need to communicate their assessment of a candidate for the office of elder and also the office of deacon. And the way that we tend to do that in our setting is by a vote, right? A vote gives the opportunity for the members of the church to voice that they believe the man we're looking at fits the role that they're being called to. 
And so that's what we do. And that is a reflection of this biblical practice where you have the people of God assessing and evaluating. Now, I can just say from my own experience, because unlike these situations, I came in from the outside. I was in Texas. Not super... I was involved in ministry. I was living life, trusting God, living in fellowship with Him, way down there, and none of you knew me at all. And so we went through a very interesting process to get me here, and it was almost the reverse order. So the elders connected with me, evaluated me on paper, and then talked with me several times, listened to my preaching which by technology is available to the world, or it was. I just found out that my old church took everything off their website. So Not just of me, of everybody, so it wasn't personal, I don't think. <laughs> um, but um, then the elders distributed that and said, we're considering this man as perhaps a viable candidate. And you guys got to listen to so many of my sermons, and I have to admit that made me nervous when I heard that. Um, <laughs> That so many of you were listening to whatever you wanted to uh, off of whatever was on the internet. But you guys began to evaluate me on that basis. And then my family flew up here, spent a weekend with you, trying to get to know you, and got to know you as well as we could, and you got to know us. And then you made your evaluation, and two weeks later you voted, and here I am, for better or for worse. <laughs> But that is a good and faithful representation of the biblical process, I think, the pattern. Now, when we select elders who are not salaried elders like myself, ideally we would select from among the men in this body. And so it would be much easier for the body to say, you know, I think that guy might be qualified. And then we start the process of evaluation based on the criteria given to us. And so that's how I think we're moving forward But I want to commend you as a church for following this process faithfully and vetting me severely. Um, And I believe following the Lord's leading as I was on the other other end of the country, so to speak. Um, So I want to close, or before we close really, I just want to look at those passages in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that talk about, that give the the picture, the the template, if you will, for overseers. We will talk about deacons next Sunday. And what's interesting as we look at these qualifications is that for elders and for deacons, the qualifications are largely the same. Largely the same. There's significant overlap. And the other thing to mention ahead of time is just to recognize that most of these qualifications are character issues. This is about your character. This is about the work of the Spirit in a man's heart that then spills over, bleeds out in their life so that it's visible to other people. That's the whole point of this. You lay out qualifications and you want to look at a man's life and you want to match them up. Now, here's the thing. I guarantee you, if you talk to anybody, I've talked to many elders of many churches that I've been involved with, men that I've known, and I've talked to some of the guys here. I guarantee you, That when an elder who's been an elder looks at this passage that lists out these qualifications, every one of us looks at that and goes, you know, I I don't really measure up. When we evaluate these 
qualifications. We don't need to treat them in a legalistic fashion. Here's what I mean. I hope, so I'm going to stand up here and potentially disqualify myself right now. But I don't think so. (laughs) I hope not. There have been occasions, let me just pick one at random. Um, Hospitable. It's one of my favorite qualifications of an elder. Because we tend to think that that's a qualification for our wives. But it's not. There have been times, occasions, where I have been unhospitable toward a person, toward a believer. There have been. There have been times, moments, where someone might come into my church, the church where I'm at, and I have ignored them. Or I have not intentionally sought them out to welcome them in. That is being unhospitable. I don't think that singular occasion of a failure on my part disqualifies me. And the reason I don't think it does is because... I recognized it after it happened. I owned it, and I sought to rectify it. I repented. That's the kind of thing we need to think about when we're evaluating ourselves. Because I think what happens oftentimes is men whom we would look at and we would say, they fit the qualifications. But a man looks at this text and he looks at his own life and he says, I'm not qualified. Because he knows himself to not perfectly meet this picture. And I don't perfectly meet it. No one does. But we're talking about these qualifications need to be treated as a pattern of behavior, a pattern of character that is visible in a man's life. Now, there are some issues that a single event might disqualify. If a man commits adultery with his wife as a professing believer, I would say that disqualifies him from serving in this role. There are other issues that are like that. But generally speaking, when we look at this template, we don't need to look at it in a legalistic fashion. Now, I'm not going to expound these qualifications this morning. I'm not going to explain what all they mean. I'm simply going to read them out. But before I do, I want to reiterate something that I kind of glossed over last week but intended to press home really hard. So let me do it now. Given that we are seeking more leadership in this church, I want the men of this church who are members of this church to take this very seriously and evaluate your life and just see if you meet these qualifications and if you might have an aspiration, because that's one of the qualifications, you've got to want the job. We're not going to conscript you or draft you into service. Okay, It's not going to happen. You have to want it. You have to want to serve this way, so that's a qualification. But evaluate your lives. And I particularly am speaking to the younger men in the office, in the building. There's not an age qualification for this. The word elder does typically mean older person, but that's relative. I've already been called an older person once since I've been here. (laughs) I didn't take offense because I am older than some people, but not as old as others. Um. But I want to challenge the younger men in particular because here's the thing. The the job, the job, the function of an elder is weighty. And, And as men get older, just bodily, it takes a toll. And I... 
I'm convinced in my experience, I've met many men who were serving as elders later, later in life, and I've talked to other men who were younger, and I've asked them what they think about this, and invariably, the response has been, maybe someday, but right now, I'm too busy. My life is too full. I've got young kids at home. I've got a job that's demanding. I've got a full life. I really can't add anything to that. And I respect that and appreciate it. I have a toddler at home. I know how demanding she can be. And I was a stay-at-home dad for three years. I really get it. Okay? I really get it. Your life really can be full to such a way that it would be unwise to take on a, a leadership responsibility in the church. Having said that, I want to challenge the younger men in particular to think earlier in life about this goal, whether it is for years down the road or whether it is for earlier on in life. Paul says this is a noble task. This is something that young men ought to want. And what I'm challenging you in particular is to think about your priorities. Think about your priorities. How highly do you prioritize your involvement in the local church? How important is it for you to be involved? I'm going to use that vague term involved in the local church. Is showing up on Sunday mornings enough? And in particular... I want you to think about, if you, if you see in yourself, or your wife, or your friend, or your parents, or your siblings tell you, you know, I think you meet the qualifications. Would you think about that really seriously? And think, you know, it might be worth sacrificing something else in my life. Like career pursuits, for example to serve in the local church because it's important. We need leaders. We need leaders who have energy for the job, who are also qualified biblically, but we need people to be invested. And it's important. It might be more important than the amount of money that you can make in your lifetime. It might be more important than the security of a retirement account that's pursued by making sure you get all the promotions in the world. It might, it might be. But each of you evaluate your own selves. One more charge. I want to speak specifically to the parents in the room. From the parents of infant sons in the building to the parents of rebellious teenage sons in the building. I want you to look at this parents, moms and dads, as a goal for your sons. Are you raising your sons with a mentality that says, I want them to want to serve in the local church someday. If God should so shape their character that they meet this qualification set, I want them to want it when the time comes. And so I'm challenging you parents who have sons what can you be doing from the earliest age to put this as a target for your boys that says, this is a good thing for you to pursue. Yes, we want them to pursue successful careers. Yes, we want them to pursue happy and healthy marriages. Yes, we want all those things. But are we pushing them to think about their service and leadership in the local church? 
Do we see our involvement in the local church as high priority? I hope you do. And I hope as parents you can pitch that vision for your sons. That someday they might step up. Not necessarily into vocational ministry or whatever. Not necessarily that you kick them off and send them to seminary at some point. But that they would be looking for opportunities to serve actively in their local church. If you don't start telling them from the earliest age, it it takes some of us guys a long time to figure things out. You know? I mean, it really does. We're slow on the developmental level, generally speaking. We need our parents to guide us in the right direction. And so, parents, I challenge you to look at this seriously for your boys. Whatever age they are, start now pitching that to them as... This is good for you to look at and to move toward as you grow older and to practice getting there. You see, all these character qualities, I've already said, they are, they are produced by the Holy Spirit in a man's life. But like the fruit of the Spirit, which is different, but like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and 23, they are to be cultivated. It takes intentionality in a man's life to develop the maturity in these qualifications that is required. We don't just sit back passively and the Holy Spirit just kind of zaps us into these roles. It does not happen that way. Let's read the text. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy... If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let me just remind you before we jump over to Titus 1 real briefly. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy who is a delegate of Paul's. Paul didn't, uh, Timothy didn't grow up in the church of Ephesus, but Paul has sent him as an outsider to the church of Ephesus to deal with that church and help them correct some things that have gone wrong since years ago Paul left. I mean, we, we looked at last week, Acts chapter 20, where Paul addressed the elders of Ephesus and said he's not going to see them anymore. That was years ago. Maybe 20 years have passed almost by the time Paul writes this letter to Timothy and, sends, and Timothy's already in Ephesus. And he says, Timothy, while you're there, this is what you need to give attention to. And he lays out these qualifications because Timothy is probably going to need to appoint some new elders. Because the warning that Paul gave to those elders back then was that some of these elders that I have appointed are going to turn out to be wolves. 
And that's something that we need to remember all the time. In this whole process of choosing leadership, the human side of it is capable of making mistakes. The elders do not have perfect vision of the Spirit's work in a person's life. Neither does the congregation. But the reality was, Paul said, I appointed you, and yet some of you will turn out to be wolves. That means that at the time, Paul looked at their life and he says, you meet the qualifications, I believe the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, and they turn out to not even be believers. Wolves are not believers. Wolves are enemies. And so, from Paul's vantage point at the time, he believed that these men would be or were qualified that the Holy Spirit had been at work in their lives, and he was wrong. If the Apostle Paul can be wrong, I think we can be wrong too. It's something to pursue with diligence between the elders, the leadership of the church, and the church itself. The church makes mistakes too. The congregation is not always right also. But that's the way that we work together in all of this. Titus 1, verses 5-9. through Titus 1, 5-9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, or, let me stop there for just a minute, or, the ESV has a footnote there, or, are faithful. His children are faithful. What does Paul mean here? I want to stop here for just a minute because I think there's some significant confusion from the way that Paul's worded this. So, does he mean that if a man has children who have walked away from Jesus or who are too young to have accepted Jesus, that they are disqualified from serving as an elder? I don't think so. I think what Paul is describing is instead the word faithful. And faithful is in the context of a particular relationship. And in this context, it is faithful in the family. Faithful in the family. That's what's elaborated when he goes on and says, His children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Think about it, folks. Are you held accountable before God when your children rebel or walk away from the faith? Are you going to be punished for their sin? Nope. The biblical principle is the person who sins is punished for his sin. Now, that's not to say that you didn't have some responsibility in that, okay? We've got to be careful about that. But I cannot see reason to believe that Paul would disqualify a man from serving as, as an elder if his children are either too little, like mine, and act like crazy people sometimes, like mine, and that disqualifies me from serving as an elder. I hope it doesn't because here I am and here she is and you all get to love her just as much as I do. Well, maybe not, but you get to be frustrated with her as much as I am, maybe. So... I don't think that's what's being spoken of here. I think there's this aspect of faithfulness in the family. So what's the point? What's the point? The point is, are you, as a father, taking responsibility for the instruction and admonition and discipline of your own children? 
Are you involved in the process? Are you fathering your children? At some level, there's going to be a responsiveness to that, at least in the home. And that's what's being measured, I think, here ultimately. So I probably chased that more than I needed to, but let's go back and look at the rest of this. So verse 6, his children are faithful believers, faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there's the template, folks. Think it over. Reflect on it, particularly you men, and apply it to your own lives. Whether or not you aspire to the office of overseer, men, these things are good for you to pursue nonetheless. All of these qualifications are character traits that are expected of believers in some measure, men and women altogether. So consider it. Think it over. Think about how you might cultivate these kinds of things in your own lives. And parents, think about how you might cultivate these things in your son's lives. So as we conclude, I want to pick up on a line that Paul has here to Titus, who again is somebody sent in as a delegate, right? Paul didn't plant the church in Crete, I don't think. We don't know if he did, but he was there at some time. But he apparently didn't stay long enough to appoint elders. He attended to, but got pulled away. And so he sent Titus in as his authoritative representative to, do the, to finish the job, to appoint elders in every town on the island of Crete. He says that overseers, in verse uh, 7, are God's stewards. And that's what I want to close with. Elders are God's stewards. A steward is someone who has been entrusted with something. Someone who has been entrusted with something. What is it? that overseers or elders have been entrusted with? What are we stewards of? What is the stewardship that has been entrusted to us? It is the gospel. It is the message about Jesus Christ. I said last week that that's the primary tool that shepherds, pastors, elders, overseers, use in their shepherding work. Should be. The primary tool that we use to shepherd the flock Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 4. So we'll return to where we began, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So he compares himself to a clay pot. Fragile, weak, ugly. Hey, elders, did you like that description of yourself? Fragile, weak, and ugly. I'll, I'll own it. Clay pot, jar of clay right here. Weak, breakable, fragile. But God has put in us a treasure of, inest, of inestimable value. What is that treasure? It is the gospel message. He talked about it the verses before, verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants. Guess what word that is? Diakonas. It's the deacon word. Not the office of deacon. Servants. We are servants for, your, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul's saying there? If you want to see God's glory, where do you look? You look at the face of Jesus. How do you do that? Jesus isn't hanging around. His face isn't right here like I can see your faces. He's sitting at the right hand of God right now. How do I see His face? In the gospel message. In the scriptures. That's where we see His face. That's where the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines to us. As we see how all of scripture points to Jesus. In one sense, it paints a portrait of His face. You want to see Jesus' face? That's the key to life. You look here in the Scriptures and ultimately in the Gospel. That's what's been entrusted to us. That's what's been entrusted to all of us. It's not just the elder stewardship. It's not just the stewardship of the Apostle Paul. It's the stewardship of the church. The Gospel is our possession. It's our message. It's the message that's been entrusted to us to communicate to the world. We are all ambassadors of Jesus Christ. But... Elders, overseers, pastors have been called to stand out in front. That's what the Greek word translated lead means. Stand in front. We're just sheep that God has marked by His Spirit and called out to stand in front and to lead the way. Colossians 1, 24 and 25, and we're done. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, diakonos, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. That's my job description right there. To make the Word of God fully known. Known. That is the stewardship that has been entrusted to us. God has given us this book. And the goal of this book is to show you Jesus Christ. To show you what God has done in Christ to reconcile the world to Himself. There's good news in this book. From Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. Finds its proper place in relationship to the gospel message. And that, that is the role of a shepherd, an elder, a pastor, an overseer, whatever label you want to attach to us. Our job is to hold out the Word of God to you, to feed on, to be nourished by, to be changed by. We have no power to do it ourselves. And so, you can replace me with another guy. You can add to our leadership. You can take away from our leadership. But the job description will be the same, no matter what flesh and blood is standing up here. The gospel message is the key. That's the tool. That's what drives everything. 
And that's what we hold out before you week after week and hopefully day after day as we live with you and as we seek to shepherd you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for putting together your body this way. Thank you for working in our lives by your Spirit. We thank you that you enable us to be structured and organized in such a way that we can move forward, that we can keep following Jesus in this world that presents so many obstacles, so many temptations, so much brokenness around us and even still in us. We need each other. We need the structures that you have designed for us. And we thank you that you've told us all about it in your word. Ink on pages that can be translated into a language that we can understand and receive. Thank you, Father, for caring for us so well. We pray that you'd help us as we think about increasing the number of our leaders in this body. I pray that you would stir the men of this body to pursue cultivating these character qualities in themselves. I pray for the men of this body that they would not shy away from leading among your people. And I pray most of all for this church, men, women, children, that we would keep following Jesus faithfully, that all of us would keep moving forward and that there would be a priority placed on our involvement with each other, not just on Sunday mornings in this building, but that our lives would be genuinely shared. We need each other desperately, and you've made it so. And so I thank you that you've given us to each other, and I pray that you would bind us together ever more in unity and love, and that we would experience the fullness of joy that you offer to your church and to your individual sheep day by day. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And we are in your presence now. So we don't have to wait for eternity to find the joy that you offer. You give it to us freely now. And so let us receive it and experience it on a day-by-day basis. Thank you for Jesus who makes all of this possible by his death and resurrection.